All right. Good morning, Trinity Bible Fellowship. Good to see you. Good to be back. Thank you for your prayers. My wife and I recovered, and um, we are no longer sick, um, except I don't have any taste left, which makes it drinking coffee just almost pointless. So uh, <laughs> I pray that that comes back. Um, I hope so. <laughs> All right. And uh, yes, so um, we have a few announcements and uh, a couple prayer requests. Uh, before we get all of things started, I would just like to welcome you. If you are new here, this is your first time, thank you for coming. Thank you for being part of our family. You are welcome here, and we are glad to have you and blessed to have you. So uh, please, I hope you are blessed and hope God just meets you right where you're at. That is our prayer. And again, thank you for coming this morning. All right, uh, announcements. Uh, February 27th, coming up at the end of this month, will be the last day to update the phone directory. To get your picture in, to get your information checked, the phone directory is downstairs in the fellowship hall. It's on the table, just to the left as you walk in. Um, if you get a moment to go down there while you're having a cookie or something, thumb through there. Make sure your information's correct. Make sure uh, your name didn't get misspelled. Yes. Amen. So if you have not gotten, if you've dragged your feet and not gotten your information in there, there are cards there. Put down your information so you can get in the phone directory. And uh, that way, when it comes time for, um, you know, we, if, usually a lot of times we use the phone directory, um, not just for this, but for, uh, this is one of the reasons. When we have a freak snowstorm and we have to cancel, uh, Pastor Phil will call us elders and say, you take A through D, you take D through F, and We'll call all of you, and all of you probably received calls from us saying, no church, it's two feet of snow. But that's just one of the reasons. The other reason is you can thumb through the directory and get to know people, especially if there's pictures. You can put a picture or a face to the name, and it just helps us to go closer to each other. And you'll have it there in case you need to call folks. So, yes? Yes. Amen. So uh, if you don't have a bulletin, grab a bulletin. They're in the back on that table back there. Dee's email is in there. And if you want to send her a picture digitally, uh, just send her that email and she will get that and we'll get it in the directory. All right. Okay. Other announcements. Uh, if you uh, missed the preparation class or the uh, preparedness classes, I do have a video and I've got one more coming and more on the way. We're going to make more. Uh, just, uh, just me and my wife... Uh, giving classes, teaching you how to be prepared for the times that we're living in, because we're not living in normal times. We're living in uh, inflationary times. We're living in crisis times. There's a lot of going on in the world, a lot of changes, and we just want you to be prepared as best you can for your family and your loved ones and yourself. So if you'd like those videos or like to be, uh, have, have access to them, I will give you the link. They're a YouTube. It's a YouTube channel. It's just a private YouTube channel. I don't throw it out there for everybody just for the church. So if you want that and you want to watch that and get some tips on how you can be better prepared, uh, please come see me and I will send you that. All right. Uh, Ladies Life Group, don't forget, Thursday is 630. Uh, Kim is obviously much better now and she's uh, no longer sick. So that will be Thursdays, 630. Ladies Life Group here at the church. And also Ladies Monday Night Bible Study is on as usual, 7 p.m. on Mondays via Zoom. And if you have any questions about that, just come ask me. 
And also, two prayer requests we'd have. Uh, pray, pray for uh, Pastor Regal down in the Philippines. He's trying to start a, a WANA group down there. And so uh, please pray for Pastor Regal that uh, God would bless that and they could start an Awana group for the young people down there. And also pray for Mylene, uh, one of the congregation mister, um, members that goes to Pastor Regal's church. She's just a, a dynamite lady, but she is um, sick right now and it might be COVID. So please pray, pray for Mylene also down there in the Philippines. Uh, we've just come to pray for that little church a lot and they're going through a lot more than uh, what we go through up here down there. So uh, continue to keep them in your prayers. And also continue to keep uh, Pastor Pat in your, repair, in your prayers as he recovers from a knee surgery. Uh, you'll look back there as you come in, and he won't be there behind the, the computers. He's going to be recovering for at least four months, or four weeks, I think. Four weeks, yes. And so keep Pastor Pat in your prayers. And, uh, you know, if you, if you friend him on Facebook, drop him some encouraging words, and uh, just continue to pray for him. All right, that is it for our prayer requests and our announcements. If you have prayer requests and you didn't get them up to me in time, uh, just put them in that little tiny wooden box over there on the table, write them down, and we will get them on the prayer chain for you. All right, with all that, uh, let's bow our heads. Father God, we thank you, and Lord, we just exalt you. You are so good to us. And Lord, we just lift these, these prayer requests up to you. And Father, we lift up Pastor Regal. And Father, we just pray that you would work through that man and that you would uh, impact that area through his ministry and the ministry you've given him. And Father, we just pray that um, it, they are able to expand that ministry through the uh, ministry of Awana to all the young people down there, Lord. I just pray that you would uh, just give them the wisdom and the power and the strength and the grace to do that, Lord, and you would empower them for that. And Father, we lift up our sister, Mylene. And Father, we ask that you would heal her. Lord, uh, be it COVID or just a flu, whatever she's going through, Lord, we just pray that you would heal her and cause those symptoms to go away, and we just lift her up to you. And we lift up Pastor Pat to you, Lord God, and we ask that you would uh, uh, cause his need uh, to heal rapidly, Lord, and that he would just have a pleasant recovery process, uh, just a time to draw near to you, and uh, all that downtime, Lord, we just pray that you would uh, continue just to work in him and work through him and Lord, that again, that you would heal his knee, and we just thank you for that. And Father, we just lift up the message this morning. We lift up our pastor. As Chris prayed during worship, Lord, we also pray that you would anoint him this morning with your Holy Spirit. Father, that you would touch our pastor and empower him to proclaim your word this morning. And Father, you would cancel out the man and cancel out the flesh, that the word of God would come through loud and clear. And Father, as the word of God comes through from this pulpit, from your servant, Lord, I pray that it would impact each and every one of us. Lord, give us ears to hear your word proclaimed. And Father, may we step out of the way of the Holy Spirit and allow the Holy Spirit to have his perfect work in our lives through the preaching of your word. And Father, above everything else, may you be glorified this morning, we pray. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. Amen. Okay, if you open up your Bibles to uh, Philippians chapter 2, we're going to talk a little bit more about the uh, divine humiliation of Christ. He humbled himself and then he fulfilled the mission God the Father gave him and then God the Father exalted uh, Jesus uh, to the Father's right hand. So we'll be talking about that, Philippians 2, 5 to 11. 
And as you're turning there, uh, we'll go to the Lord in prayer one more time that he anoints um, me to preach his word. Uh, we do this because uh, humans are fallible and sinful, and we don't always get things right. Um, that's what, like, you know, fake news is all about. We don't always proclaim the truth, uh, but the word of God is true. And uh, so we respect the word of God, and we pray that God cancels the man and uh, has his truth proclaimed from this pulpit uh, despite uh, the, the fallible preacher. So let, let's go to the Lord in prayer on that. Father, in Jesus' precious name, we thank you, Lord, for sending us your living word, your son, God the Son, become a man. And, uh, and as we study uh, about that, the incarnation, God the Son becoming a man, the divine humiliation, um, we also recognize that you've given us your written word, that you guided human authors to record your word without error. But we're fallen readers and fallen preachers of your perfect word. So I just pray, Lord, that you would anoint me with your spirit, fill me with your spirit, empower me to proclaim your truth so that I would not lead anyone astray. I pray that each and every person here would study your word and test what they hear from this pulpit as they test all things with your word, and that they would only hold fast to that which passed the test of your word. May we test all things with your word. I pray, Lord, that you'd open hearts and minds to understand your truth and empower us by your spirit to apply these truths to our lives so that we could be all that you called us to be and be pleasing in your sight through the power of the Holy Spirit and for your glory. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. Okay, so Philippians chapter 2, uh, verses 5 to 11. I don't know how much of this we'll get through. We're still using the handouts from a few weeks ago. We're spending uh, a decent amount of time on this. It's one of the most important passages in the scripture. And uh, But just remember that Paul is telling the Philippians, look, make my joy complete. I'm in prison, but you can make my joy complete if you toss aside your selfish ambitions and your arrogance and you have the lowliness of mind, humility, you humble yourselves and put others' needs before your own. And so uh, Paul is uh, commanding the Philippians to do this. And so, you know, we're believers too, so... So God's word is commanding us to do this, to put away our own agendas, our own selfish ambition, and to put others' needs before our own. And then he gives us the perfect example. Now remember, please never ever forget the primary reason why Jesus died on the cross was not to set an example for us. You will have liberal Christian theologians who don't really believe, don't really believe God's word, and they'll just say, well, Jesus set the example for us, so he's a way shower. If we follow his example, we can save ourselves, okay? We cannot save ourselves by works, okay? So the primary reason why Jesus died on the cross 
for our sins was to take our punishment for us, to be a substitute sacrifice for our sins, and in the process, he conquered Satan and his demons. Now, one of the implications of that is he did set a good example for us on the cross. In fact, the, the ultimate example of humility. God the Son became a man and went through the trials and the sufferings of life and even death, even a horrible death like crucifixion, not for himself, but for us. Okay? We selfish humans, we always want to, everything we do, we want to do for ourselves. That's our natural inclination. We've got to say, look, I'm going to serve the Lord. I'm going to put the Lord first, others second, and myself third. And so Jesus set the ultimate uh, example of humble service for us. By the way, humble service is not, it's, that's not just the Christian view of service. That's also the Christian view of leadership. And I've preached numerous times on uh, Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 45, where Jesus said, if you want to be first, if you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be the servant of all. And so we Christians should be into servant leadership, not power leadership. We don't lead by stepping on people so that we can climb up the ladder, okay? And, and by the way, most secular businesses understand that now. I don't know if they know it or not, but they teach an awful lot of biblical principles. I don't know if they know they're getting them from the Bible, but they're teaching them. You know, if you can meet the needs and serve uh, your workers under you, they'll be able to do their job better, and then it will help the company and this and that. But we need to be servant leaders. Uh, here, Jesus, who was the leader of the 12 apostles? Jesus. What did he do? He wore the garments of a slave and he washed their feet on the night he was betrayed. Humility. You know, when I first got saved, I was such an arrogant guy. If another arrogant guy walked in the room, and believe me, there are professing Christians who are arrogant. If another arrogant guy walked in the room, I could smell him a mile away because he smelled just like me. Okay? <laughs> And, um, and I had to pray constantly for humility. Um, I remember one time shortly after getting saved, um, a guy was preaching. I was in the back behind everybody, and I prayed that God would take away my pride, and I started crying like a baby. And then the guy called me up front, because I had just read, some of you know Bob Ryer, I just led Bob Ryer to the Lord, and... Um, uh, and then I had to get in front of all these people, a Marine with a semi-Mohican haircut and a tight shirt on and crying like a baby. It was like one of the most humiliating things that I went through. But uh, when you pray for humiliation, humiliation hurts. Don't get mad at God. If you're praying, if you're praying, God, humble me, Okay. Make me see the areas that I'm falling short. You're praying for a promotion. You're praying to move up in God's kingdom. But guess what? There's growing pains, and it's going to hurt. And But Jesus set the ultimate example 
for us of humble service, okay? And so Paul says in verse 5 of Philippians 2, let this mind, this mind or this attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So we're going to have unity and we're going to humbly serve each other if we have the mind of Christ. Not our own minds, not our own attitudes, not our own agendas, but God's agenda, which is called the kingdom of God. The mind of Christ, the attitude of Christ, okay? And, um, and so we've got to have the same attitude that, um, that Jesus had. We've got to, Jesus set aside his needs and desires and humbly served us by becoming a man and dying on the cross for us. So we need to follow his example of humble service. We must put on the mind of Christ. We must have Christ's attitude and his love for others. Now, verses 6 to 8 talk about the divine humiliation. God the Son humbling himself by becoming a man and dying on the cross for our sins. Then because he did that, God the Father exalted him. The divine exaltation of Christ, verses 9 to 11. Now you think, well, how can God be promoted? Well, God as God cannot be promoted. He can't be brought any higher. I mean, we exalt him because he is worthy of all exaltation. Uh, but when God the Son added a human nature and was obedient to God the Father and died in that human nature on the cross, then God the Father exalted him. Because Jesus is not only the creator, but by becoming a human, without subtracting from his divine nature, he still remained God, but he added a human nature. And so not only is he the creator, but he's also part of the creation. And like Colossians chapter 1 says, he's the firstborn over all creation because he's God incarnate and he faithfully served the Father by dying on the cross for our sins and then he's raised from the dead. So he's the firstborn over all creation. Okay? He has the right to rule. The firstborn had the right to rule over his brothers. He has the right to rule over all his brothers and sisters. The firstborn over all creation. And so, uh, so let's take a look first at the divine humiliation of Christ, verses 6 through 8. So, so have, have this mind in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, and in verse 6, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Okay? So that's the divine humiliation of Christ. Now, it says there, being in the form of God. And that's very important there. It doesn't say who was in the form of God, but then became a man. Okay? 
being in the form of God means that Paul is teaching us, God's inspired him to teach us that Jesus continued to exist in nature as God even when he became a man. So it wasn't like Jesus was God the Son, and then he stopped being God by becoming a man. He continued to be God, even though he added a human nature and became a man. And, and let me tell you something about the word form. Uh, being in the form of God, you'll get Mormons will say, well, therefore God the Father's got to have a body. Because we say, you know, look at that guy's form, uh, that guy's build or whatever, and... Um, and we think of form as something physical. Well, with the ancient Greeks and the ancient Jews, uh, you can find a lot of this in like Plato's thought and all. But, you know, when God created the universe, it was what? Formless and void. And then the Spirit of God designed it. Okay? So if, if you had uh, clay, a mound of clay and it's just a mound of clay that was dumped there, that's formless, okay? No thought went into it, just dump it, okay? But then if you started working with it and an artist sculptured it and made something, he's giving it form, okay? But the form is not the matter, it's not the material. The form is the idea that's impressed into the matter to make it something, what it is by form. So, so keep in mind, the form isn't the physical thing. So Jesus existing in form as God, what that means is he, he existed in his classification as divinity, as God. He existed in nature as God and continues to exist in nature as God. He doesn't cease to be God, so by definition... Jesus is God, he is God the Son, who being in the form of God, being in the nature of God, everything that you have to have to be God, Jesus had. Okay? And we're all confused about, like we're human beings, we have a human nature. We think, well, human beings have two arms and two legs and a head. Well, wait a minute, there's some humans that, that were in an accident and lost a leg. And they're still humans. So the things that you necessarily have to have to be a human are not always what is common among most humans, okay? But everything that Jesus had to have to be God, he continues to have. That's what it means to have a divine nature. Who, being in the form or the nature of God, did not consider it robbery, to be equal with God. So he continues to exist in nature as God, God the Son. Now, there's a big debate about what exactly that means there. You know, by the way, anybody who tells you that Jesus used to be God and he no longer is God, they're contradicting this and many other passages of Scripture which say that Jesus is still God, okay? Who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, did not consider it something to uh, be grasped. So, so Jesus, though he continues to exist in nature as God, as God the Son, uh, equality with God 
is something Jesus did not need to steal or try to grasp. Why? Because he is God. Don't, this is unlike the first Adam. Remember, the first Adam was not God, and he was tempted to be like God. So this passage might be telling us, since Jesus already was God, there was no desire for him to try to grasp deity because he already had it. That's one way to understand this passage. Another way to understand this passage is that even though Jesus continues to exist in nature as God, still he did not cling to his equal rights with God the Father. In other words, he voluntarily gave up his use of certain divine powers while on earth. He still had these powers. If he ceased to be all-powerful, everywhere present, all-knowing, if he ceased to be those things in his basic nature, he would cease to be God. So he voluntarily gave up his use of certain divine powers while on earth. He still had these powers, but chose not to use them for his advantage. In other words, he became one of us, and he decided not to cheat. Okay, um... He grew up and learned just like we learn. I'm sure Mary and Joseph had to change his diapers. Okay? Um, he chose, he still, he knew everything. Jesus is God the Son. Continues to be God. He knew everything, yet he could say, I don't know the day or the hour of my return. Why? Because he's not tapping into his divine nature, his divine powers. Okay? And in his human wisdom, what he had learned, he didn't fig couldn't figure out when he was going to return. Now, he would rely upon God the Father. Every time before the resurrection, every time Jesus performed a miracle, he didn't do it in his own power. He trusted in God the Father, who empowered him through the Holy Spirit to do, to do these miracles. Jesus did not use his own powers for his advantage. Just read the Gospel of John. Jesus will say things like, I don't say anything that I don't hear from my Father. I don't do anything unless the, the Father empowers me to do it. Okay? So this is, this is what some theologians call the doctrine of the kenosis. Now, there are heretical kenotic theories where they say the Greek word is empty. This passage says, Canel, that Jesus emptied himself. But it says he continues to exist as God. So anybody who says that Jesus emptied himself of his deity, of his godhood, that's heresy. He didn't empty himself of his deity. He emptied himself of his reputation. Okay? So like when Jesus walked into a room, he didn't shine or glow. So people say, whoa. That's God walking over there. It was like, no, that's a hard-working carpenter from Nazareth. Okay? This is why uh, Isaiah predicted 700 years before Jesus walked the earth that he, he didn't have any form of majesty that men should look upon him. They wouldn't do an awe, like, oh, wow, this guy's royalty. This guy looks like a king. Okay? And uh, so Jesus humbled uh, himself uh, by becoming a man. But he still had these powers. By the way, after Jesus rose from the dead, now all bets are off. 
Okay? Jesus came on the Mount of Transfiguration, gave a glimpse of his glory. He was white as snow, and Moses and Elijah showed up with him. Okay? Uh, but most of his time on earth, he just walked around like a regular guy. Uh, and then God the Father would lead him and empower him through the Holy Spirit to perform the, these, these miracles and all. But he chose to empty himself, not of his deity, that's heresy, continued to be God. He chose to empty himself of his reputation by uh, becoming a man, made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, of a slave, and coming in the likeness of men. Now, four key doctrines. If you don't want to become a cultist someday, become a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon, four key doctrines. They're all biblically based, and great Christian thinkers throughout the centuries have taken passages and tried to reconcile passages, understanding that God doesn't contradict himself. This is what we call systematic theology. If you don't have a systematic theology, a systematic doctrine of God, then you have an unsystematic, chaotic doctrine of God, and you shouldn't get behind a pulpit and preach people. So you want a theology that makes sense. And, uh, and so what theologians have found over the years, that the doctrine we're talking about is the kenosis, the divine humiliation, the divine emptying that Jesus humbled himself and veiled his glory by becoming a man. That's the doctrine of the kenosis, uh, that Jesus humbled himself and veiled his glory by becoming a man. He voluntarily gave up his use of certain divine powers while on earth. He still had these powers, but chose not to use them for his advantage. So Jesus didn't know the day or the hour of his return. Now, after he rises from the dead, and the apostles ask, when are you going to come back and restore the kingdom? Jesus didn't say, I don't know. He said, it's none of your business. Okay? You're, uh, this is above your pay scale. So we shouldn't be picking dates for Christ's return. Instead, we should be doing what Jesus told the apostles to do. You know, he told them, stay in Jerusalem, and not many days from now, the promised Holy Spirit will come and empower you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Okay? Um, but, uh, but Jesus didn't say, I don't know. After he rose from the dead, there's, uh, there's no need um, for that full aspect of the divine humiliation. Now, I, I'll be honest with you. I think even when he appeared alive to the apostles, he still had to veil a certain amount of his glory because the Bible says flesh and blood shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But we'll be changed in the twinkling of an eye when Jesus returns and our mortal bodies will put on immortality. That basically, if we saw Jesus in all his glory in this present state, we would melt right now, literally. And... Um, but we're going to get resurrection bodies so we can see him face to face. Okay? And, uh, but that's the doctrine of the kenosis. Now, the doctrine of the incarnation is that God the Son became a man. Without ceasing to be God, God the Son became a man. This is all in, in the notes. If you didn't get the, 
the handouts, if we're out of the handouts, I can make some more for you next week. But the incarnation, God the Son became a man, okay, without ceasing to be God. And that leads to the hypostatic union, which is the doctrine which says that Jesus is one person with two distinct natures forever. His natures don't blend. He is fully God. He's, he's got everything. He's 100% God. He's got, a, he's got everything you have to have to be God. But he's also fully human. He's 100% human. He's got everything you have to have to be human. You know, I'll, I'll ask my students, uh, are all humans sinners? Yes. Do all humans have a sin nature? Yes. Um, then how can Jesus be a human, be fully human without a sin nature? And it takes him a while to figure it out. And I say, well, is it possible to be human without a sin nature? And then they figure out Adam and Eve, when they were created by God, they were fully human, and they didn't have a sin nature. And then they fell. And guess what? When they fell, they corrupted or perverted human nature. So the question shouldn't be, without a sin nature, could Jesus be fully human? The question should be, we have a sin, with a sin nature, are we fully human? Because the fact of the matter is we're corrupted humanity. Okay? Now, Jesus is still working on us. And, uh, and eventually we'll be fully conformed to the image of Jesus, who the Bible says when God the Son became a man, he is the image of the invisible God. So in Jesus, the full image of God in man will be recovered. Okay, through, through the Lord Jesus Christ. But the hypostatic union, Jesus is one person with two distinct natures forever. He is fully God and fully man. So sometimes the Bible talks about Jesus' human nature. He gets tired, he gets hungry, he gets weary. Okay, and sometimes the Bible talks about Jesus' divine nature. When Jesus said, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, that's... That's his omnipresence. That's his divine nature. Okay? And uh, so Jesus always existed throughout all eternity. He always existed as God, the second person of the Trinity. But at a point in time, he added a human nature without ceasing to be God. So now he is fully God and fully man, okay? In his divine nature, Jesus is here right now. And in his human nature, he's at the Father's right hand, hand in heaven. But contrary to what our leaders think, uh, he's coming back. You know, they think that Jesus is finished with the planet Earth, and therefore we're finished with him. Well, he ain't finished, and we're not finished. He's coming back. And uh, the leaders of this world, if they're not trembling, uh, they're insane. Because Jesus, he became one of us, but he did not cease to be God. So the hypostatic union, Jesus is one person with two distinct natures forever. He is fully God and fully man. He always existed as God, the second person of the Trinity. But at a point in time, he added a human nature by becoming a man. So, it's, so the two natures don't blend. That's Eutychianism. That's a heresy. 
The two natures don't blend. So Jesus is not a hybrid. He's not half God, half man. No, he's fully God and fully man. Okay? And, um, uh, and then, of course, the doctrine of the Trinity. The Bible teaches that there's only one God. The Bible speaks about God, the, the Father being God, the Son being God, and the Holy Spirit being God, and then it talks about them as three distinct persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the doctrine of the Trinity, there is only one true God, but this one true God is three eternal and distinct and equal persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus is God the Son. God the Father never became a man. God the Holy Spirit never became a man. Only God the Son became a man, and that's the divine humiliation. And so Jesus humbled himself. He lowered himself. So uh, verse 8, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient, obedient to the Father's will to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So just becoming a man, when you're God, just becoming a man is is big time humiliation, okay? But then to die, there's always shame involved in death. No matter how noble the death is, that's not the way things ought to be. God didn't create us to die, okay? We turned on him. We disobeyed his will. We corrupted human nature. We brought death in to the human race and the animal kingdom. And, um, and so Jesus humbled himself. He lowered himself, not just by becoming a man, but also by being obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, which is the most shameful way to die. Now, when we think of crucifixion, we think of horrible pain. In fact, when we try to come up with the word for the most horrible kind of pain possible, we took it from crucifixion. And we said, I, I had excruciating pain. That comes from the word crucifixion. Okay? So, and, and certainly when Roman soldiers uh, would, cru usually they wouldn't scourge you and crucify you. Jesus was a special case. Pilate was trying to appease the Jewish religious leaders by having Jesus scourged. And with each time you were whipped, there was a handle on the Roman flagrum with three branches coming out of it, three strands. And then at the end would be a, a piece of metal or a piece of bone that was designed to tenderize your flesh, dig into your flesh, and eventually, if you got scourged enough, it would tear chunks of your flesh off. So that's why the Jews said 39 lashes, uh, 40 lashes would kill a man. If you were a Roman citizen, they'd only give you 39. Jesus wasn't a Roman citizen. So they could have given him 100 lashes if they wanted to. And um, so the horrible pain of scourging, and then, not like in the movies, they got Jesus carrying the whole cross, but normally they just carried the beam of the cross. The cross was already in the ground. Maybe it might have even been a, just a tree, okay, sticking out of the ground um, that had been carved so that there was a, 
place that you could connect the beam, but he would have carried the beam, which is worse, by the way, than the cross, because you'd be dragging the cross, and if you fell, you'd fall to one side or the other. A beam, they'd tie your hands to it, and as you're walking, you, when you fall, the weight of it, it would be you would do a face plant. Okay? And um, now, Jesus has just been scourged. And so then on his back, with all those tender wounds on his back, you place this beam upon it. That's why Jesus couldn't carry the beam all the way to Calvary because he was so beaten from the scourging. And Simon of Cyrene had to come. I don't know if you know, but uh, Paul was uh, buddies with his, friend, with his son. So apparently Simon of Cyrene came to Christ. And, um, but, uh, but whatever the case, um, then when they would take him there, they'd probably lay him down and nail his hands to the cross. We know from studying crucifixion and studying on cadavers, on human corpses, based on what we see in the Shroud of Turin, which may be, some believe, I believe it is, the burial cloth of Christ, that the point of resurrection, the image of Christ, was left on there, a full, kind of a photographic negative of it. So we look at a photographic negative of the shroud, you get all the details. Forensic scientists have studied it and saw that the wounds are either in the wrist, you could put it in the palm of the hand, the spikes, but you've got to come out on an angle so it comes down through the wrist. Okay, because on the shroud of Turin, you can't see the thumbs and the fingers are extended like that. And... Uh, but with cadavers, they put spikes in the palms of the hands, and the weight of the body just tears right through it. And the guy falls off the cross, and then people would laugh at the Romans and act like, oh, that was a real dumb way to try to kill a man, and uh, that really failed. Um, but you put it through the wrist or through the palm, but you go down so it comes out the wrist, and there's two bones there that could support the weight of the body. Okay? However... What it does, though, it hits a nerve that not locks the thumbs in place and pulls the fingers back, which is exactly what you see in the Shroud of Turin, okay? And, um, and then they would nail the feet to the cross. Usually they'd put a little block of wood underneath so you can push up and get some air, and that's what kept you alive. You can't breathe in the down position with... Uh, your arms supporting the entire weight of your body. So you have to keep pushing up. Now keep in mind, when you've got a spike through your feet, pushing up is not a lot of fun. You put a crown of thorns on Jesus' head, and every time he comes back, uh, he gets pierced in his head time and time again. And he's very weary from being um, scourged. And... Um, and here he is, the all-powerful God, who could have just sent tens of thousands of his angels and gotten himself off the cross. Here he allowed Roman soldiers, little specks that he created, he allowed them to mock him, to beat him, to crucify him. And, um, um, and so... Um, uh, some guys would be on a cross for days. Jesus was on there for six hours, probably due to the scourging, okay? 
He was already exhausted. Many people died just from the scourging alone. And, um, and then when he hung down in the down position, um, and it was time to take, the, because of a Jewish holy day, it was time to take Jesus and the two criminals off the cross. Um, one of the Roman soldiers saw that, well, he's already dead. Because what they would do is if you're alive, they just break your ankles. And then you can't push up anymore and you die within minutes. But the Roman soldier's like, well, he's already dead. But just to make sure, let me pierce his side. I'll give him what would be a lethal blow. So if he's not dead, he'll be dead now. But the flow of blood and water, John, John just recorded because he never saw such a thing. A gentle flow of blood and water. Okay? Um, from experimenting on cadavers, we see that when you, when you pierce that side of the body and you get that gentle flow of blood and water, okay, that's evidence that you just pierced the side of a corpse. Because the pericardium surrounds the heart, and it's got a transparent, watery-like liquid that surrounds the heart. But as long as your heart is beating, it mixes blood with that immediately. So if you pierce the side of a living human being, it's going to either squirt or pour out blood. But for there to be a gentle flow of blood alongside a transparent watery substance, that's evidence that you're dead. The Journal of the American Medical Association in the late 1800s did research on that, and then in the late 1900s repeated the research and confirmed that Jesus of Nazareth was dead before he came down from the cross. By the way, if they had broken his bone, it would have violated Psalms, which said that God would not allow his Holy One uh, his bones to be broken, and it would also disqualify Jesus from being the Passover lamb because the Passover lamb could have no broken, broken bones, Exodus chapter 12. And uh, so this was a very, very important details. And so that's like the, the, the suffering um, of Christ. And so we think when Jesus died on the cross, we think, man, that's just like, that's just nothing but horrible suffering. Well, let me tell you, what we fail to realize is we don't put enough emphasis on the amount, not just of suffering, but the amount of shame and humiliation. And that's what Paul's emphasizing here. I am glad, even Mel Gibson in the Passion movie, who tried to be as realistic with Christ's sufferings as he could, he, he acknowledged he had to tone it down a bit because he wanted somebody to actually watch the movie. Okay? Um, but I praise God that even Mel Gibson decided to have the Roman soldiers leave Jesus' underwear on him. Okay? Uh, and every movie they ever made about Jesus, he's always got his underwear intact when he's on the cross. Look, if the goal is to shame you, it's like, it's like the Roman Empire saying, look, you messed with Rome. So we're going to crucify you in a public place. It's going to be the most horrible pain you can imagine. So nobody's going to want that to happen to them, but it's going to be the most shameful experience ever. So you tell me if they probably left the underwear on crucifixion victims. And so they were probably there, they're naked on a tree. I mean, I'm telling you, crown of thorns with thorns, 
naked, tree. He gets buried in the garden. Um, I mean, we're talking, we're talking Garden of Eden stuff. And God has all these things because God oversees, he is, has providence over human history and sees all these things. But death on the cross, it was the most shameful way. It was like, we want people to look up on a hill, on a public road. We want travelers to look up and say, that's what happens to people who violate Roman law. Don't mess with the Roman Empire. And, um, and so that was the most shameful way to die. So Jesus humbled himself and lowered himself, not just by becoming a man, not just by being obedient to the point of death. That was the reason why he came to earth, was to die for our sins. But even uh, submitting to death on the cross, the most shameful way to die. Look at Deuteronomy 21:23. The fifth book of the Bible, Deuteronomy 21. Deuteronomy 21:23. I will look at verse 22 and 23. If a man has committed a sin deserving of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day, so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, for he who is hanged is accursed of God. Okay, now you have to understand in, in, in Old Testament times, they didn't crucify. So the guy they're talking about on a tree, if a guy commits a sin or a crime deserving of death, you put him to death. How do they put him to death? Usually by stoning him to death. So the guy's already dead, and then you hang his body on a tree. Okay, and, uh, but it's cursed as anyone who hangs on a tree. Now, in the New Testament, when the Jews saw people being crucified, they'd say, oh, that guy's cursed, because cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. So they applied this passage to that. Uh, we're going to see even the Apostle Paul applied, applied that passage to Jesus' death on the cross. Uh, Acts chapter 1. Judas hung himself, so he was hanging on a tree, but then eventually the rope broke or the branch, because nobody wanted to bury him. They figured this guy's cursed to God because of what he did. He betrayed Jesus. Even the high priest didn't want to take the money back, the money they paid him, the 30 pieces of silver. They said it's blood money. Nobody wanted to bury him. He's cursed to God. He's hanging on a tree. So eventually either the rope broke or the branch broke, and he fell, his Stomach was probably bloated, and his, his guts came out. Acts chapter 1. But again, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. It's a thing of shame and humiliation. Okay, But look, look at Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13, Paul's letter 
to the Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13. Galatians 3, verse 13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And so Paul saw Jesus' crucifixion as an application of that passage, that Jesus took our shame when he was crucified on the cross, when he died on the cross for our sins, and cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. So the Jews would have viewed crucifixion as shameful first, a curse first, and then a horrible way to suffer and die second. But they would have put the emphasis more on the shame the most unnoble way to die, the most shameful way to die, they would have put more, most of the emphasis on the shame rather than on the suffering, okay? And so uh, when Jesus became a man, he humbled himself by becoming a man and then by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the most shameful way to die, a death, on the cross. And so what is Paul saying? Paul saying, look, Jesus placed our need to be saved above his own physical needs and well-being. Okay? You know, we're, we're never more like Christ than when we put the needs of others before our own and when we serve them. And here Jesus, he came to earth it was a humiliating thing just to become a man. It was a humiliating thing to suffer. It was a humiliating thing to be mocked, to die, to be forsaken by your friends. It was incredibly humiliating to die the most shameful way possible, naked on a cross by the pagan Romans. But Jesus placed our need to be saved above our own physical, his own physical needs and well-being. Paul's telling us we got to be like Jesus. Some of us have agendas that are not God's agenda. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. If you're a carpenter and God's called you to be a carpenter and you're doing his will by being a carpenter, you're going to want to try to be the best carpenter you could possibly be. Okay. But frankly, some of us have agendas that just, it's not God's will for our lives. You know, there are pastors of small churches that sometimes they get offered bigger churches. There are some pastors that have had great, quote unquote, success in the eyes of the world by pastoring a little church and doing a good job. So then they get an offer for a medium-sized church, and they do a good job for five or ten years, and then they accept an offer for a bigger church. And so sometimes you'll have a pastor pastoring a church of 5,000 people, and he was never, never pastored a church that was growing, and spiritually or in numbers. 
but he had an agenda. Now, was that God's agenda for his life? I don't know. That's between him and the Lord, okay? But if my agenda is to build my own kingdom, rather than to build the kingdom of God, then I need to take on the mind of Christ, okay? And um, by the way, there's a lot of guys out there with churches of 5,000 people that they planted those churches, and some of them built those churches the, the hard way, which is the biblical way, through solid discipleship. And others built those churches the easy way, which is just turn Christianity into a mushy self-help. Tell people what they want to hear and they'll keep coming back. You know, but, but basically we got to make sure that the Lord's agenda becomes our agenda. God's will becomes our will. We need to, to have to take on the mind of Christ so that we can place others' needs before our own. So that's the divine humiliation. Jesus humbled himself. He lowered himself, not just by becoming a man and even by being obedient to the point of death, but he even humbled himself to the most shameful way to die possible, even death on the cross. He became... Those who violate the law are under a curse. He became the curse for us. He took our shame. Remember, Adam and Eve were naked and not ashamed. They only got ashamed after they sinned. Okay? And Jesus took our shame. He placed our need to be saved above his own physical needs and well-being. Now, verses 9 to 11 is the divine exaltation. God the Father's response to Jesus, God the Son humbling himself. And so um, Jesus lowered himself by submitting to the Father's will, and then God the Father lifted him up. It's the divine exaltation of Christ. So look at verses 9 to 11. Therefore, because of what Jesus did, and Jesus set the example for us, not the main reason why he died. He died as a substitute sacrifice for our sins. But, but by dying, he set the example for us. We should be willing to humble ourselves and suffer for the sake of others, putting others' needs before our own. So how did God the Father respond? Therefore God also highly exalted him. Jesus humbled himself. God the Father exalted him. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. Please do not waste your time trying to figure out what that secret name is. Wow. God the Father gave Jesus the name above every name. What, I wonder what that is. I think I wasted two weeks as a new believer trying to figure out what it was. Okay? But uh, if... I'm not a Tom Brady fan, but he, he has won a lot of Super Bowls, okay? So if he's the GOAT, the greatest of all time among quarterbacks, then you could say that Tom Brady has been given the name above all other names of NFL quarterbacks. Well, it wouldn't be a different name. It would, be, it would just be saying that Tom Brady's name is now the name of the GOAT, the greatest of all time among quarterbacks, okay? Uh, a couple of us few of us would vote for Kenny Stabler. That's a whole other story. Um, but whatever the case, so it's not like there's some secret name. Therefore, 
God also has highly exalted him, lifted him up, and given him the name which is above every name. That at what name? That at the name of Jesus, not some secret name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay? So the divine exaltation, this is God the Father's response to Jesus humbling himself. Jesus lowered himself by submitting to the Father's will. God the Father lifted him up, the divine exaltation of Christ. This includes raising him, part of that exaltation, raising him from the dead. I've accepted your sacrifice now I'm going to raise you from the dead, the resurrection. Then his ascension, his glorious ascension to heaven. His being seated at the Father's right hand, the ultimate position of authority in the universe. Seated at the Father's right hand. His glorious return, when he returns, he's going to return in power and glory. When you looked at the first coming of Christ, it looked pretty, pretty humble there. He wasn't even in a hotel room. He was in a manger, a place made for animals. It stunk of animals. And there's little baby Jesus in the manger. It's kind of humiliating. Second coming of Christ is part of the exaltation. I'm telling you, the, the evil rulers of this world, they got no problem with a humiliated Jesus. They think, well, he's, he's no threat to us. He died 2,000 years ago. They got no problem with a humbled Jesus, okay? But they need to acknowledge that Jesus is now exalted. And when his first entrance into this world, it was pretty humiliating. But the second time he comes back, you know, just read Matthew 24, 29 to 31. The sun will be darkened. The moon won't give its light. The stars will fall from the sky. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn because they didn't trust in him. And the Lord Jesus is going to return with a great trumpet blast with power and glory amidst the clouds. And he's going to gather his elect from the four winds. Um, the return of Christ, that's part of the exaltation the reign of Christ on earth for a thousand years and then over the entire universe for all eternity. That's part of the exaltation of Christ. So God the Father highly exalted Jesus. He gave, the, he gave Jesus the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And this is all creation. This is in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. What's implied there is that even Satan himself and all his demons are going to have to bow before Jesus. 
okay? See, we, we misunderstand, we misunderstand and we underestimate the gospel message, and we act like the gospel message is this, will you bow to Jesus? not what the gospel teaches. Will you bow to Jesus? The God, when I read the Bible, I understand you will bow to Jesus. If I was talking to former President Obama or President Biden, I don't care who it is. I'm not going to say it would be nice if you bow to Jesus. I might say it would be nice if you bow to Jesus freely of your own volition now and get saved. But I'm not going to say that, um, you know, you, you could go through all eternity without bowing to Jesus. You're going to bow to Jesus. Okay? So we got to keep, keep it clear. Don't, yes, the divine humiliation, but don't forget the divine uh, exaltation. We can choose to bow now, or we can be forced to bow later. but you're going to bow. Because he's the king of kings, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Peter, Paul, and John. He's your God. He's my God. He's the creator. He's the redeemer. You can bow now or you can bow later, but you're going to bow. And I don't care how, I don't care if your name is Bill Gates or your bank account is as big as his. You're going to bow, dude. Okay, the lamb who was slain is also the lion of the tribe of Judah. I don't care how much power you got on this planet. I don't care how much money you got on this planet. I don't care how much fame you have on this planet. You are going to bow. Because the Lord Jesus, my Savior, is still God. And he is not just king, he is the king of kings. And he has been exalted as the firstborn over all creation, who has the right to rule over all creation. Because God the Father gave dominion over the earth to man in the garden, and we blew it. So now Satan is called the God of this age. He's a false god. But Jesus, through his death and resurrection, has won the right to claim back the planet earth. And he will do that when he returns. And so the question isn't, are you going to bow? You're, we're all going to bow before the Lord Jesus, okay? And uh, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, in heaven, on earth, under the earth. All creation will bow before Jesus. So we can choose to freely bow now and become children of God through faith in Jesus, or we can be forced to bow later. But we're going to bow. And every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Calling him Christ means he's the Jewish Messiah. Calling him Lord in this context means Yahweh. Look back at Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45. Twenty-two and twenty-three. 
you know, God just got done saying, you know, the verse before in the second half of verse 21, and there is no other God besides me, a just God and a Savior. There is none besides me. So God is talking. Look to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath. And so every knee is going to bow to who? To Yahweh. To Yahweh. When he calls himself the Lord in verse 21, it's Lord with all capital letters. In verse 24, it's Lord with all capital letters. That means they're translating Yahweh. So kurios in the Greek, when, when Jesus is called Lord, it doesn't always mean Yahweh, but sometimes it does. In fact, I would argue most of the time it does. And in this passage, it has to. That every knee is going to bow before the Lord Jesus and say that Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Jewish Messiah, is Yahweh. And... Um, um, Yet, this is to the glory of God the Father. You know what that means? God the Father and God the Son are not in competition. We worship God the Father through God the Son. He who has the Son has the Father as well. The Bible says he who rejects the Son rejects the Father as well. So every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. He is Yahweh. He is the Lord of Lords. He is the King of Kings. And, um, and this will be to the glory of God the Father. So when we worship the Son, we bring glory to God the Father. Okay? And so an application here, we should follow Jesus' example. Uh, look at, uh, we'll close with this with Mark 8. Mark chapter 8. Verses 34 to 36. You know, Paul said, look, we, we need to be united in Christ and humbly serve others. That's what he told us in Philippians 2, 3 to 4. Then he said, look, just follow Jesus' example. Put others' needs before our own and follow Jesus' example. Um, you know, in Mark ten forty five, Jesus said, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Is that your goal in life, to be served or to serve others through the power of the Lord Jesus? Mark eight thirty four to 36, when he had called the people to himself and with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, do you desire to come after Jesus? Do you want to be a real disciple? Do you want to be a real follower of Jesus? Well, this is what you got to do. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Okay, deny your own selfish ambition, pick up the cross, whatever mission God's given you, it's going to involve some amount of suffering, and then follow Jesus in the path of obedience. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Okay, we, we've got to say, Lord, I'm living for you. I'm giving you my life. I'm putting your son Jesus first, others second, and myself third. I'm going to humbly serve.
uh, in your kingdom. And finally, Jesus' half-brother in James 4.10 said this. He said, and Peter said the same thing in one of his letters, but humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Okay? It's not our job to exalt ourselves. Look how good I am. Okay? It's our job to humble ourselves. It's God's job to exalt it, to exalt us. Okay? And uh, it's our job to bear a cross. Okay? And put others' needs before our own. It's going to be Jesus' job to distribute crowns and thrones when he returns. That's his business. Our business is uh, carry that cross. Whatever mission God has given you, put Jesus first, others second, and yourself third. Follow Jesus' example by putting your own needs on the shelf and putting the needs of others uh, before your own. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, in Jesus' precious name, we love you, Lord, but we know that we don't love you enough. And so we pray that you would help us to love you more. Lord, we love so much the things of this world that it just drags us down and prevents us from being all that you called us to be. And so I pray, Lord, that um, your spirit would empower us, that we trust in your son for salvation, but your Holy Spirit would also empower us to be all that you called us to be and to walk faithfully with you and to put you, your son, and your spirit first and then put others above ourselves and put ourselves third. So help us, Lord, so that we would humble ourselves in your presence and that uh, it would be your, your job to exalt us. You, you make that decision. That's none of our business. It's our business to just humble ourselves humbly serve you, to humbly serve others, to love you with everything we got, to love our neighbors ourselves, but to humbly serve others through your love and through the power of the Holy Spirit and for your glory. And then uh, in due time, you will exalt us. But we just love you, Lord. Thank you for sending your son to be our savior. May we all recognize we're sinners we cannot save ourselves, but that your son died on the cross for our sins, took our 